Hi everyone and welcome to TYT Interviews. Well, as you know, I am the science correspondent here at the Young Turks and often that means my job is that I get to fight Jenk and Anna on things like GMOs and science policy. But sometimes my job is truly awesome and this is one of those times. Boy, do I have an amazing interview guest for you guys tonight. Um, he is among the world's leading experts on cannabis um, and he's also the author of this fantastic book which has just released its second edition so you should grab a copy. Um, he was the co-founder of the first evidence-based medical cannabis collective in California. Two things, evidence and cannabis that we all love. Um, and if that's not cool enough for you, he was also the science consultant, Hollywood scriptwriter and technical guy on lots of films that you might have heard of, including Spider-Man, Jurassic Park, The Abyss, Twister and Iron Man, where he got to come up with all of the cool technology that Iron Man gets to play around with. So welcome to the studio, Michael Backus. Thanks, Jed. So this is the second edition of your book, Cannabis, Cannabis Pharmacy, and in it there's a lot of uh, evidence. I think that's the basis of why you would have put this together. Definitely, yeah. to, to really kind of compile, combine the evidence, compile the evidence into one kind of easy to read format for people. Well, cannabis seems like it's a pretty emotionally charged issue, as is all drug control. So before we get too far into the policy issues at the moment, tell me about the evidence for recreational cannabis. Is that something, is cannabis something that people should be using if they don't have a medical condition? Is it bad for my health, good for my health? It really depends on what guidance you're getting on using cannabis. I mean, you know, human beings have used cannabis for 12,500 years, but it's only been illegal for a little bit less than 100 years. And so we have to kind of look at the history of using the plant. It was the most widely used plant medicine in the 19th century in the United States. And all of the major pharmaceutical companies made cannabis tinctures that were widely available over the counter. And so I think that cannabis, if it's used intelligently, is an incredibly safe plant. What about if it's used unintelligently? Is there anything that can go wrong? Sure, I mean, like with anything, I mean, it's a relatively potent drug. So if you use too much of it, what happens is, is because cannabis mimics substances within the body called endocannabinoids, um, if you use it too much, your endocannabinoid system basically compensates by reducing the density of those receptors. And we really don't know what the long-term um, ramifications are of downregulating your endocannabinoid system. But what we do know is if you use it at a reasonable dose level, it's very, very safe and won't do anything harmful to you. Well, thank you for putting together all the evidence because California, here in California, they just legalized recreational cannabis. So a high five to you, you did it. Uh, so that means that, uh, that brings California in line with Alaska, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Maine and Massachusetts with a lot more states that are still using it for medicinal reasons. Um, is cannabis a legitimate medicine? Does it have medicinal uses? Sure, I mean, it goes, the evidence goes back all the way to 3500 BC in China. And uh, as I said, it was the most prescribed medicine in the United States uh, in the 19th century. Um, it's especially effective for things like chronic pain, um, but also a lot of other conditions, whether it be uh, potentially neurodegenerative conditions like um, kind of chronic uh, traumatic uh, brain conditions associated with contact sports, um, to even uh, some symptoms of cancer treatment. So cancer treatment, it can be used in things like concussion, it can be used in degenerative disorders. It sounds 
cannabis sounds like it's a wonder drug. It kind of gives me the hint of like maybe I'm going to see it on a one of those midday talk shows where they're like this pill cures everything. Is it really that good? Is there more like what is the science being done behind this? Is it really solid or do, do, is there a little bit of scam or hype behind cannabis? Well, it can be used for a lot of different symptoms of diseases. So, you know, it's not used to cure hardly anything, but it's used to treat the symptoms of almost everything. And the reasoning, again, is it's mimicking a system that's found within the body, the endocannabinoid system. And that's a regulatory system responsible for things like neurotransmission, appetite, sleep, memory, emotion, and maybe even large aspects of our personality. So, because it has so many disparate targets within the body, um, it has a lot of different uses. So it's not necessarily a miracle drug, but for addressing a lot of symptoms, it's an amazing and amazingly safe and non-toxic medicine. Now you've put together this this whole book where you've looked at lots of different evidence uh, about how cannabis can be used. But what did you? what would you say if someone hasn't read your book that was the most surprising thing that you found? Oh wow, the most surprising thing. Um, I think that, that, it, that it's that it gives you different effects at different dose ranges. So at very, very low doses, um, it can relieve anxiety. At very high doses, it can cause anxiety. So understanding the dose you're taking of cannabis really will set the trajectory of your outcome. And so what's really interesting is one medicine becomes two depending on how it's dosed. At low dose, it'll stimulate appetite. At a high dose, it'll retard nausea. So it's really, really interesting, interesting drug. So if you ever wanted to know more about the science of cannabis use, check out Cannabis Pharmacy. I want to talk a little bit about the policy now because I'm, you know, I'm the science person, but I think that you should have science informing policy and cannabis is a really interesting area where the the science matters, but not necessarily to policymakers. So Attorney General Jeff Sessions recently appealed policy from the Obama era, uh, protecting cannabis businesses from federal prosecution. So whilst we have states like California where cannabis is legal, at a federal level, still illegal. So my question is, why isn't the evidence being turned into evidence-based policy? Because policies based on a moral stance often are not overturned by the science that contradicts that stance. And that's what's up. I mean, it's one of these things where a lot of people have have said that, oh, you know, cannabis is immoral and causes madness and, you know, all this craziness. When in fact, if you look at the science, um, we actually have millennia of safe use of cannabis. And uh, we need to embrace that rather than some moralist position. What do you think is the thing that uh, policymakers are getting wrong most often? Because I hear things like, you know, it destroys your brain, which I know to not be true. But what have you seen any examples where policymakers have just got the facts completely wrong? Yeah, I mean, what they do is, that the thing is, is that the endocannabinoid system with which cannabis interacts was only discovered in 1990. So the truth is, is that a lot of people who graduated from college in, let's say, 1952 and still occupy a Senate seat, were, had never had the opportunity to be exposed to the discovery of this system and its impact on our understanding of cannabis. Cannabis is getting safer as our understanding of it increases, but the policymakers currently are decades behind. So we, all our policymakers might need a little bit more science in their lives. There's no question. I mean, they could use it on everything from climate to cannabis. I love that answer. So uh, California just became most recent state to legalize recreational use of uh, cannabis. Few other states have it available 
for medicinal reasons, but there's still lots of states where it's outright illegal. I heard that New Jersey was going to be the next state to legalise recreational cannabis. What do you think is going to be the next state? I mean, I just think it's a wave and it's hard to pick which state will come along. I think the states that will be last to come along are states that don't have public referenda to change the laws, where it's just their legislature that changes the law. So I think Hawaii will be one of the last states to legalise recreational cannabis because of the way their laws are made. Um, Not because the people don't want it. No, I mean, 70% of Americans right now um, support uh, medical cannabis. I think that may be as high as 80 now. Um, we're up around 60% for legal adult use cannabis. So, I mean, it, it, it's changed. The, our, our attitudes have changed, and it's time for our laws to catch up. Do you think that cannabis will ever be totally legal across the board in the United States? Yeah, no question. But I hope that that comes with a really, really strong regulatory scheme to make sure that people are educated about how to use it wisely and that products are safe and well-labeled and consistent. All right, well, everyone, check out Cannabis Pharmacy so that you yourself are well-informed because I think knowing the evidence behind this is a, it's a really important area of science where people are just getting it wrong and making bad decisions, and then some people are getting it right. So make sure you're well-informed. I want to switch gears now with you, Mike, because... You're a Hollywood science consultant, and you've basically worked with all of my favorite people. So, would you mind if I could just like be you? Would that be okay? Yeah, that'd Can be fine, actually. Lives? Actually, sure. I, as long as I get a small, uh, reasonably negotiated cut of the action. So. <laughs> yeah. so, how do you become a Hollywood science consultant? How does anyone have that job? How did you first get into the biz? Um, I got in because I, I met Ron Cobb, who was a, a conceptual designer uh, on movies like uh, Alien. Um, Dark Star, John Carpenter's first film. He designed the bar scene in Star Wars. And uh, he wanted to get into computers. And so I was really into uh, the Macintosh computer in the early days after Apple introduced it. And uh, I turned him on to how to use Macs and his work. And he turned me on to how to do conceptual design. And uh, so I started working with him and initially did The Abyss with him and James Cameron. And uh, yeah, it just took off from there. I'm a huge James Cameron fan, so when I saw the abyss on your list of projects, I was like, oh. And Michael Bain, I love Michael Bain, such a wonderful, that was a great movie, very underrated. So I'm glad to see that you were behind some of the best scenes in that. Um, you've also, oh, I'm going to switch, I'm going to talk some more about movies in a second, but you've also consulted, you mentioned Apple before, you've consulted Apple, IBM, also DARPA and the Department of Defense. Are you allowed to tell us anything about those projects? Yeah, it's not as nearly as dastardly as it potentially could be. Um, I, I help them look at the uses of uh, computer-assisted uh, narrative. So what you're doing is looking at a story, how it's told, and how software might be used to improve or even bend the trajectory of a story that someone tells themselves. Now, I saw that you wrote some scenes for Twister, or you were the writing partner for Twister. Which scenes did you work on, and was it the one where we got cows? No. So actually, Michael Crichton and Anne-Marie Martin wrote the screenplay. Michael Crichton asked me to work on condensing a four-page scene he had that explained how the gizmo worked that gets sucked up into the tornado. And so I just did, I basically just took some great writing that they did and kind of made it a little briefer. And so I didn't get credit as a screenwriter on the film, but I got to contribute to kind of a key scene that explains how one of the key gadgets works in the movie. So you took the long dialogue that Michael Crichton had come up with uh -huh. explaining this and condensed it down so that it was accurate but entertaining. And I think Michael was working on a novel at the time, so he just didn't have the time. He was perfectly capable of doing it on his own. <laughs> um, so actually, he kind of just threw me a bone, which was very nice of him. 
I became interested in science after watching Michael Crichton's ER. So I watched that growing up and just loved the way they portrayed doctors in this really dramatic way. And I thought, I'd love to be a doctor. Then I got to a real hospital and I was like, ah, I'm not interested in sick people anymore. Same with Crichton, <laughs> actually. When he got to a real hospital, he decided he'd rather be a writer than a doctor. So even though he got his MD from Harvard, he ended up going into writing and directing. See, me and Michael Crichton, we had yeah, that in common. Exactly. Um, what was it like working amongst all these huge Hollywood heavyweights and working on these massive films? What was the experience like? Terrifying and humbling, <laughs> I think it's probably the best way to put it. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, there are reasons that these people are at the top of this ecosystem. And uh, uh, especially with Crichton, really, really bright guy. And uh, he just keeps you on your toes. And I think that's what, it, it was really the challenge of working with these guys that was that really kept me excited. Well, I like that you were, you were in charge of taking long pieces of dialogue and condensing them down, which is really at the heart of good science communication, being able to get a concept out in a way that's entertaining. It doesn't confuse people with their too much technical information. Is that normally what your role is on films, getting the science down into a way that normal people can understand or? Definitely, and it's, it's kind of a normal passion people. of mine anyway. I mean, I always used kind of fascinating facts as social currency with my friends. And so it's basically taking that into a professional arena and trying to take a complex topic and distill it down into something that is easily understood, basically. What's the hardest part, hardest thing you've ever had to explain in a film? Oh my gosh, probably something I didn't do a particularly good job on. I mean, I can tell you it's something I screwed up, which is kind of fun. Um, uh, there's a scene in Jurassic Park where Dennis You Nedry, screwed up Jurassic Park? Yeah, a tiny oh, scene, my. if you pay attention to it. Um, <laughs> there's a scene where uh, Dennis Nedry, the bad guy, is talking on the phone to somebody via video conference. And we had just gotten the first rev of QuickTime from Apple, the video software. And so when he's talking on the video phone, if you pay attention, you'll notice that there's a scroll bar moving at the bottom of the screen indicating <laughs> that it's a canned clip. And we couldn't get rid of it at the time because we couldn't get one of the engineers from Apple on the phone to say, how do I get rid of this darn scroll bar so it doesn't, I, I want it to look live. <laughs> uh, it didn't work out. So it's right, my mistake is right on the screen. So on the screen, you can see that scroll bar that shows that it's not live. Yeah. Has I think, anyone see, ever picked it up? Oh yeah, I would imagine, I haven't seen the, the, the remasters of the movie, but I, if I was Steven and had Steven Spielberg's power, I would have gotten that rid of that shot already and replaced it with how it's supposed to look. I heard that, because um, you've worked with James Cameron, so you might appreciate the story, you've probably heard it too, um, that Neil deGrasse Tyson watched Titanic and the scene right at the end where they're on the boat, Rose and Jack are on the boat and they look up at the sky. Neil deGrasse Tyson noticed that it was the wrong hemisphere that they were showing. It was the southern hemisphere instead of the northern hemisphere. And he met James Cameron and was like, James, I loved your film Titanic, but you got the stars wrong. And he was like, yeah, well, I still made billions of dollars, didn't I? But then when he saw the remixed version, it had changed. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the great thing about working with Jim Cameron, he is a, he's a, what they call a lifelong learner. I mean, he's obsessed with getting it right. And that's why really I'm looking forward to the next Avatar movies because trust me, this guy doesn't stay, stand still. And so- uh, Did what you he's consult on? on Avatar? No, I didn't work on Avatar, but I'm really looking forward to his movies, so always. Do you find that art imitates life? So is it a, a, something where you're coming up with stuff that really exists and you're just modifying it for the screen or do you find yes. it- Okay. Typically, I mean, what I like to do is I like to, I, I, I do what's called a logic transplant. Okay, so let's say you're doing Spider-Man and, and you have to come up with some way for Doc Ock's arms, the AI to work. Well, 
back in the 1960s, AI hadn't even been invented when that character was created. And so what I'm trying to do is look at modern technology and try to figure out a way to fit the logic of the story with some little, you know, science ornaments. Interesting. So what, what, I mean, you watch a lot of movies, you've been a science consultant. Is there any movie or a scene in the film where you've been watching it and they've just got the science completely wrong? Like explosions in space, you're like, mm, that just physically can't happen. Anything where you're like, they got that one wrong? Um, I mean, the movie Hackers from an IT or computer science perspective made me insane. I really just, it didn't really represent hacking or anything related to computer science whatsoever. And um, yeah, that, I think that was my most annoying experience watching a film. I was talking to our head of programming here at TYT earlier. His name is Matt. And I said that I was interviewing you. And he said, you have to ask Michael, what is a thing that's in a film, that, like something that you've put into the film and you thought, oh, everyone's gonna love this. And then they didn't notice it. Oh, I think most of everything I've ever done has <laughs> gone unnoticed by nearly everyone. What did you come up with in um, Iron Man? Um, Iron Man, actually, I worked on an early draft of the screenplay. And in the early draft of the screenplay, I was coming up with jokes that Iron Man's buddy would play on him based on science. Because at that time, uh, Iron Man had a bad drinking problem. And so he was doing things like using liquid nitrogen to freeze the alcohol he was gonna drink. So when he took a shot, he basically got hit in the face by an alcohol ice cube <laughs> and, and stuff like that. And I just, I came up with an enormous amount of pranks and also ideas for the suit. I wanted to come up with some kind of underlying logic for the AI that would be used um, and the, the materials that would be used to fabricate Tony's suit. So you came up with the idea of the materials as well? Yeah, but again, you know, when you work on a screenplay in Hollywood, you have to understand, I can be a consultant to one set of writers and then there could be 15 other sets of writers. So if something I came up with for draft one shows up in draft 15, I'm often surprised. I'm shocked is a better word, actually. What's the favorite thing that you've contributed to a script that then stuck into, it stayed until the final film? Oh, oh it, was a, it was a goofy line that I came up with in real time for Jurassic Park, where the little girl says, I know this, it's a Unix system. And when, when people who know computer science see that, they all laugh because it's such an absurd line, but it's in the movie, so. That was your line? Yeah, yeah. You got the best line in Jurassic Park. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well. I'm just so impressed that you get to hang out with Hollywood screenwriters and you get to work on science and you get to work on this very interesting area of cannabis. So everyone, please go and have a read of Cannabis Pharmacy. I really think that drug control has been such an emotionally charged issue. But if we just get the science right, we can make good policy choices. So thank you so much for putting this together for us all in a way that we can all be understand and be entertained. And thank you for joining us on TYT Interviews. Hey, Michael. thanks, Jade. Really had a good time. See you next time. All right.